0: Welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Superheroes, released through Rural 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we're looking at Jonah Hex, based on the DC Comics character, originally released on June 8th, 2010. And when I say based on the DC Comics character, I should perhaps say inspired by the DC Comics character. The basic plot of the film is inspired by the Western hero. Now, when the character was first created in the comics, he wasn't created to be part of a shared superhero universe. He was eventually pulled in and made part of the regular DC universe, when a lot of fans of the character who were creating other books wrote time travel stories that confirmed he was a part of it. This movie is its own incarnation, it doesn't have any interactions with the other DC comics films, partly because this is set just after the Civil War and most other DC comics films are set in the present day, whatever the present happens to be when the film is made. Now in the comics, Hex has no supernatural abilities. He's just really good at what he does and he's got some distinctive facial scarring. In this one, we do get a bit of a supernatural twist by giving Jonah Hex the ability to briefly reanimate the dead and have full conversations with them. Now I will go through the IMDB credits for a lot of the major contributors, but Last month, that kind of got away on me with the incredible cast that we had, and I just spent way too much time on it, so I'm going to pull back on that. I'm going to try to restrict myself to a maximum of five titles. Go a little bit over than that for the director on this one. Jimmy Hayward was a director who was brought in kind of last minute, so pre-production had already begun. As an animator, he's actually fairly well known for working on Reboot, Toy Story 1 and 2, Bugs Life, Monsters Inc., and Finding Nemo. As a director, this is his second of three listed credits. His first was Horton Hears a Who, and his latest was Free Birds. Now, not only was he a last-minute replacement for director on this one, it's also rumored that he did an uncredited rewrite on the script. Now, the story that we have here has credits going to William Farmer as his second of three writing credits, preceded by Bullethead, followed by Star and the Snowman, which is still in production. And the writing credits also go to Mark Neveldine and Brian Taylor, just as Neveldine and Taylor. They co-wrote this as well as co-writing Crank, Crank High Voltage, and Gamer, as well as working as camera operators and directors on Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Neville Dean and Taylor are also the guys who've got credit for the screenplay itself. Now, When we get into the cast, in the lead role, we've got Josh Brolin. Now, his IMDb list is best known for W, Wall Street Money Never Sleeps, so the Wall Street sequel, No Country for Old Men, and The Goonies. Sci-fi and fantasy fans and other comic book adaptation fans might know him better as Dwight in Sin City Dame to Kill 4, as Young Agent K in Men in Black 3, or as Thanos Uncredited in Guardians of the Galaxy. Now playing the lead villain, Quentin Turnbull, we have John Malkovich, who's got 89 credits to his name. The top four that we see on the IMDB are Dangerous for Liaisons, Being John Malkovich, Burn After Reading, and Empire of the Sun. Although he's done a whole lot more. Now, Megan Fox is the love interest, Lila Black or Lila Black. She is best known, according to the IMDb, for Transformers, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, the 2014 Ninja Turtles film, and Jennifer's Body. So she does have 27 acting credits to her name, including a number of other ones, but she's probably best known for being cast primarily for her looks and for directors who don't necessarily ask her to put in a strong performance. Now we have Michael Fassbender in this film as well. Fassbender plays Burke in this one, but he's probably best known as the young Eric Lensher, soon to be Magneto, from X-Men First Class and Days of Future Past, as well as roles in Prometheus and Inglorious Bastards and a number of others. He's got 48 acting credits to his name on the IMDb. Will Arnett's credits include Batman or Bruce Wayne in The Lego Movie, which is probably his other best-known superhero work, On top of that, he's been in Despicable Me, again, the recent Ninja Turtles movie, Ratatouille. He's got 83 credits to his name. Now, John Gallagher Jr. plays Lieutenant Evan in this one. It's one of his 20 credits. Going through what he's known for, there's the recent American TV series, The Newsroom, not to be confused with the Canadian series called The Newsroom, Jonah Hex, and a couple of other art films, Short Term 12, and the last film that he's best known for is Pieces of April, from 2003. 20 acting credits. So He is a working actor, but he's not one that most people would expect to recognize by look. Now, in the role of Colonel Slocum, we've got Tom Wopat, who is easily best known as Luke Duke from The Dukes of Hazzard. But he's also known on the IMDb for Django Unchained, All My Children, and this film shows up as number four of the most popular projects he's been in, of his 41 acting credits. Now, Michael Shannon was previously discussed in the podcast for his role in Man of Steel as General Zod. He's also been part of Take Shelter, Boardwalk Empire, The Iceman, 66 credits to his name. Wes Bentley is in here as Adelman Lusk. He's best known for Hunger Games, American Beauty, Interstellar, and The Four Feathers, of his 45 acting credits. Now, another one that people would know these days is Aidan Quinn. He plays President Grant in this film. IMDB lists his four best known projects as Legends of the Fall, Unknown, The Mission, and for his work as Captain Thomas Gregson in Elementary. So with those being the key members of the cast, we also get into more of the crew. The composer, there's actually two people responsible for the music. There's Mastodon, which is a band that's known for their contributions to movies like Monsters University, Aquatween Hunger Force, Need for Speed Most Wanted. They've got 11 soundtrack credits but only two composer credits, including this film. Marco Beltrami was also a bit of a late edition, which is surprising for composers because they're usually fairly late editions anyway. They start their work when the film is in or near its final cut. So having Beltrami come in and pick up from someone else's work, just the timeframes involved probably led to some of the disconnect and why there's some inconsistent scoring and sound throughout the movies. But he's got 108 composer credits to his name. He is best known for his work on Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines, iRobot, Live Free or Die Hard, and Scream. Now the director of photography here is Mitchell Amundsen, who's listed as camera and electrical departments, cinematographers on 17 films, director of a short called Closed Set, and a few other projects. The IMDb lists his best known projects as Pearl Harbor, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, Transformers, the 2007 Michael Bay film, and The Bourne Supremacy. Now from there we get into the editors, and there are four of them on this film. We have got Kent Beda, best known for work on This Is Spinal Tap, Big Mama's House, Scooby Doo, and Jingle All The Way. Next up, Daniel P. Hanley, 35 editing credits, best known for A Beautiful Mind, Rush, Apollo 13, and The Da Vinci Code. Clearly works with Ron Howard a fair amount. Tom Lewis has 13 editing credits, including The Wedding Singer, Waterboy, The Whole Nine Yards, and Rat Race. So he's coming in with a comedy editing background, which is a different style of editing to drama or action pieces. Now, Fernando Villena is the fourth editor involved, and he's coming in with his 22 editing credits, with the best-known projects being Crank High Voltage, Gamer, The Darkest Hour, and this film, Jonah Hex. So it is an interesting bunch of characters on this. It is barely a superhero film. It's definitely a fantasy film, but there's no capes, cowls, or secret identities. This is just a slightly paranormal bounty hunter who's got a very justified and justifiable desire for vengeance. So he learned during the Civil War that his unit was doing some pretty nasty things that, you know, contradicted the principles they were supposed to be fighting by. And he turned them in. And one of those people he turned in was Contempt to Death, and he's the son of Quentin Turnbull, who is the film's main villain, played by John Malkovich. Turnbull took revenge on Hex by taking his family away, namely burning a house down with his wife and child in it and making Hex watch. And then he finishes by branding Jonah Hex with his own brand. So Hex is scarred by that, and he actually ends up scarred further when he tries to eliminate the brand by burning it off, so he doesn't have that reminder on him. Now, Around the time he does that, Turnbull faked his own death, and the film starts when the world at large learns that Turnbull is still alive. The government figures out that he's building a weapon of mass destruction, something that's supposed to be able to, to destroy an entire country, and they hire Jonah Hex to try and take care of him. And because Turnbull is the villain in question, Hex is willing to work for the government and track this guy down. The other major character is that Lila Black, played by Megan Fox, who's in an on again, off again relationship with him. Now, she is a pretty strong female character. She is working as a prostitute, but she's Got no misconceptions about what she's doing. She's stashed a variety of weapons around her place, so if things do get ugly, she can defend herself, and she doesn't seem to have really any issues killing or fighting someone in self defense. So that's the basic idea is that Hex is trying to prevent this weapon of mass destruction from destroying the Union, which is kind of tenuous right now following the Civil War. So the things that are good about this film the makeup on Jonah Hex himself actually looks pretty good. It's actually pretty great. It's not an exact fit to the comics, but it's pretty darn close. You know, the comics can do things that are really hard to do with makeup effects, just because you don't have to be able to reproduce it. We've got a very strong female character in Lila, which is unusual in westerns, but part of the reason it's unusual is because the era that most westerns were made was a pretty sexist era for film. All in all, the cast is very capable, and they play their roles very well. The visuals themselves, coming from a pair of writers and directors who are also cameraman, it's not surprising that we get some great visuals in this. And I'm not saying Jimmy Hayward isn't a good visual director. He is coming from animation, so he's used to focusing on how things look. But I wonder how much of this was what they call being directed on the page by those writers who are coming in from the camera operation background saying, this would look cool, do it. This would look cool, do that, and so forth. So the downsides to the movie is that sometimes that desire to include those cool visuals will overpower the desire to tell a good story. Now, part of that may be the 81-minute edit. The film sometimes moves abruptly from scene to scene, and frankly, movies that short are often trimmed to get that short when the studio doesn't have a lot of faith in how they're going to perform at the box office. They try to cut it to the bone to get a few more screenings done opening weekend and you know, try to get those tickets sold before word of mouth gets around. And when you find out how many major crew changes there were you know doing a couple of major script rewrites once people had already been cast but filming hadn't quite started yet although the filming dates were set again replacing the director at around that time replacing the composer that close to the release there's just a lot of last minute changes being done and the fact that they held that release date that they had predicted a lot of it just ends up feeling sloppy and rushed So it's entirely possible that had they been able to push this off till 2011 rather than 2010, it could have been a much stronger film. Now, the movie didn't seem to have a whole lot of impact on the character. They deviated from the character a lot, but those deviations don't seem to have come back in. The comic series that the character was headlining at the time this came out ended up getting cancelled, but then it was relaunched with the same creative team as All-Star Western during the new 52 reboot. Now, since that, the ability to reanimate dead people and talk to them is still nowhere to be seen. Finally, getting into the box office and the business numbers. The movie had an estimated budget of $47 million. So the rule of thumb that we know we use, if the movie makes two to three times its budget domestically, it's usually considered profitable. So as long as it made somewhere between $94 and $141 million, it would have made a profit in that domestic gross, possibly less than that domestically, but with a pretty substantial amount internationally. Well, according to the Internet Movie Database, the domestic gross for this film was $10,539,414. So that's nowhere close to the numbers that we need to hit. Remember, that minimum was $94 million. This didn't quite make eleven, But a very strong international showing might be able to push the worldwide totals up enough to make a profit. So the IMDb doesn't have the worldwide box office for this one. Wikipedia does have the worldwide total. So that's including the domestic U.S. and Canada as well as the other 22 countries that had a release date for it. Well, if you subtract the domestic gross from Wikipedia's worldwide gross and look at the difference, that should be the international grosses. Going by that, those 22 other countries this aired in accumulated a total gross of $363,698 for a total worldwide gross of $10,903,112. So this did not make its money back in theaters. In fact, each of those other 22 countries averaged about $16,532. That's per country. So this money or this movie unquestionably lost money in the box office. I'd be surprised if it made that money back on DVD. When I was trying to track it down just to have that complete collection to do this series of podcasts, I couldn't find any place that still stocked it as a standalone title. In fact, the only place I got it was actually not in the big box stores or the the dedicated video stores. I found it in line at the local grocery store in a 4 Western collection for $10 as one of the four titles in there. No bonus features of any kind. Probably because this lost so much money that they decided to strip the bonus features. No special features, just get it out on the disc, dirt cheap, and hope that the low price is enough to get people to be willing to shell out for it. Now, it's not a good movie. I don't know that it's quite bad enough to actually go down as it is as the least profitable DC Comics adaptation to date, both in terms of total dollars lost and in terms of percentage of budget lost. Because as weak as this film is and as rushed and flawed as it is, I would still say it's better than Supergirl, than the fourth films in either the Superman or Batman series, Which is definitely better than Superman 3, in terms of actually focusing on the title character. Yeah, I mean it's not as bad as some of those. It's not Catwoman bad, and yet proportionately it lost more money, possibly because it just didn't have the built-in audience that Superman or Batman do. So, short version, would I recommend it? I wouldn't. I should mention at some point here that I'm not a fan of Westerns in general. So it was an uphill battle just to to get me to enjoy it in the first place. But we will be moving on to Better titles down the road. Next month we are going to be dealing with Dick Tracy, the adaptation with Warren Beatty, and in the months beyond that, I haven't decided, but I'm ready to shift back to one of the the major franchises, probably X Men, possibly Spider Man. But I'll be doing an extended run of a Marvel franchise starting in April, and I will confirm which franchise that is in March's Dick Tracy podcast. So until then, please rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher. If you know someone you think would enjoy the podcast please let them know about it and maybe give them a pointer to it and thank you for listening